Man, I love the Old Testament. Everybody's going, what's the big deal about the census, man? You know? You know, when, you, when it says, and Satan, you, you, you would guess there would be something really horrible that's getting ready to happen. And the next thing Satan did is he incited David to take a census. You know, it's like one of those things that, you know, when you read the Old Testament, you know, for those of you that have invited people to church today, when you get into like First and Second Chronicles and you're in First Chronicles 21, and, you know, like all of God's word is, you know, is good instruction for us. We see that in scripture that is, you know, it's helpful. We can, we can build one another up. It never returns void. It is good for us. But sometimes you navigate through these passages that seem a little strange and they deserve some explanation. And for me, I think coming into, and if you, if you weren't with us last week, we started the Come and Listen series. I mean, obviously you see the graphics here. Um, and I talked a little bit about the rhythms of teaching here. Sometimes we're in a book of the Bible. We went through the entire book of Romans, which took forever. Uh, we've been through Ephesians, Colossians. We've done Old Testament books. We also have series, like we went through the He Is series recently. We have tons of those. But we also go through the narrative arc of Scripture. We've been doing it since 2014, started in Genesis, and we're up to First Chronicles chapter 21 right now. So if you got your Bible, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, but the idea is that we would look at the, you know, the individual stories of God's faithfulness all throughout Scripture, connected, because sometimes we just dive into a certain spot and we're like, we don't know what's going on in the surrounding area, and we haven't built all the way up. Not everybody's going through the Bible reading plan and sees all the context. So we wanted to do that as a church. So for those of you that have been around since 2014, which is none of you, um, you've gotten the entire picture. Um, but we're, we're there in this spot in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and we're looking at individual stories of God's faithfulness. But the idea is that in each section of Scripture, that we know that the entire narrative arc is pointing to one person, to one name, to one event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This amazing thing that lets us know that there's, there's a chance for us to be back in a relationship with the one that created us, standing in the purposes we were created for. Um, and that's the narrative arc of Scripture. That's what the series is about, that we would see what God has done for you, what he's done for me, what he's done for us, that we would come and listen to what he's done. But then you stumble into these passages like this one, where it says Satan stood against Israel, and then it's about a census. And for me, it, we, it's easy to breeze past some of these. Like you, you, you see genealogies in the Bible. You see some of these weird things in the Bible that you don't understand. But for me, it's like, we have unbelievable resources at our fingertips, not just pastors, but all of us to find out exactly what's going on. We've got amazing, wise commentarians that have broken down passages like this in Scripture and told us what these mean. So I, I kind of stopped here and thought, you know, I've, I've done a lot on, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, which was all the passages preceding this one. But I stopped here and I was like, what is God saying? There's, if there's value everywhere, what is God saying in this one? It's interesting, a lot of commentaries, when you look at, People in the Bible, you know, we're in, we're kind of back in the stories of, of David, which is incredible because the stories of David are, are amazing. It's like an epic. It's like watching Braveheart. Um, but the, the, good, the good commentaries are going to lead you not to be like David or not to be like Moses or not to be like Joshua. Like, I need to figure out, you know, look at all the, the you know, the things that David did and I'm going to do the things that David did and then I can defeat the Goliath in my life. Or, you know, look how Joshua, you know, was faithful as a servant of the Lord and was always into the presence of God. I want to make sure that I do the things that, that he does. Not that those are bad things, but ultimately we have to remember that these heroes of the Bible are lesser pictures of the coming king. Like David wasn't 
the, 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 he was known as the greatest king of all of Israel, but he's still the lesser king, pointing us to the ultimate need for the Messiah, for the Savior. We needed a Savior that could take care of everything, that could take care of our sin, that could wipe every tear from every eye. We needed full redemption. And that's, what, that's how we should see Scripture. And that's good and that's right, that you aren't David. I mean, I've heard pastors screaming, you are not David. But in many ways, I mean, I'm just going to say, and I'm not saying they're wrong. Those are great commentaries. I am David. I mean, and and this is one of the ways that I am David. Like when you see the things that David didn't do it all right. In fact, I believe for most of us in the room, he outsinned us all. Like murderer and infidel. I mean, he just did all kinds of crazy stuff that was not good. So in many ways, in terms of sin, the things that David did, I can relate to. It's the reason if you've read the Psalms, and if you haven't, you should absolutely, especially if you're new to Christianity, you're trying to figure it out, an amazing, amazing place to be. I mean, I always just say, read the book of John and read the Psalms because it's real life. I mean, it's a guy crying out going, God, if you are there and you're real, I'm, I'm, my body hurts so bad. My, my life, all my friends have abandoned me. I flood my bed with tears all day long. Are you really there? Do you really exist? He's asking these questions. But at the end of that, he realizes and praises God at the end of it. God, there has to be something more. There has to be something greater. And I know that it's you. And I'm, putting, I'm pushing my chips in to your side because I know at the end of the day, I don't know what the future holds, but you do. I mean, it's just real life. So in many ways, we relate to David. So as we look at this passage, I, I wanted to ask a couple of questions as we dig in because, I mean, it's obvious. I want to know what's wrong with doing a census. Like, why was this such a big deal? Why was Joab so upset? I mean, if you read the passage, I mean, you read immediately, it says, Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So the idea of him doing a census was a problem for some reason. And Joab, who was very godly, was the commander of Israel's army at the time. He was the guy that was commanding or uh, talking to David saying, hey, bro, you should probably not do this. This is not a good thing. And the whole time I'm, you, you read this, you're like scratching your head and wondering why. Now, I do want to give us a little bit of context in leading up to this because it will it will start to give us a clue to some of the questions we're, we're asking. So what's wrong with doing a census? And then the second question that we want to answer is, how do we fight our tendency towards self-sufficiency? They seem unrelated, but actually the second question is a clue to why the census was a problem. So leading up to this place right here, last week I said King David had actually been anointed king three times. Once when he was young, um, the, the lineup in front of uh, Jesse, his father, and his brothers, where they, you know, they said, hey, you, all the brothers are here. They're all studly, but that's not the one. We want the shepherd boy. That was the anointing, the first anointing. And then he was anointed king over just one tribe, Judah. And then he was anointed king over all of Israel. Now, after he was anointed king over all of Israel, amazing things. It was a bumpy road to get there, but amazing things started happening for Israel. They became, their army grew. Um, David was an incredible, incredible leader. I mean, prior to him taking over command of, uh, or uh, prior to him taking over and finally being anointed over all of Israel, he was the commander of the army when he was underneath Saul. And women would stand in the streets when David would roll into town. I mean, could you imagine this, guys? And say, hey, Saul, the king, he's killed thousands, but David has killed 10,000s. I mean, they would sing songs about him. I mean, I'll never do that again because my wife is gonna say, Please don't do that in front of everybody ever. Um, but he just was, he, he, was the, he was the man. Like he had killed Goliath. You know, his, I mean, he, there was, 
there wasn't just legends that were being born. There was real stories that people were telling their kids, were telling their families about who David was, that he didn't stand behind the men in battle. He was the one leading his men into battle. He was incredible. And the army, they were defeating even their most difficult insurgents and enemies, the Philistines, over and over again. It, kings and commanders of massive armies at the times, ones you could read about in secular history, they feared Israel's army. I mean, they, 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 were, they were terrified because God was on their side and they had heard things about David and the way that he waged war that they were mortified. So that's where we are right here in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Israel was whooping some serious booty and had gotten to a, a great place in terms of where they were in the world. They're one of the most powerful military forces on the planet. So let's start with the first question so we can kind of dive in. Well, what's wrong with doing a census? Well, a census in itself is not sinful. In fact, I looked in the, in the, in the Bible, there was so many times when God asked people to do a census in the Old Testament. A census has been taken for military purposes and numbers, sanctuary tax, you read about it in Exodus, again in Numbers, just simply for populating the land. They wanted to get an assessment of what was going on in Nehemiah because they were just trying to get organized when they were building the wall. When they were building the temple, they took a census to find out um, who would be a part of rebuilding the temple. I mean, there's census all over the Bible and none of them were considered sinful except for this one. And so I, the, the idea is trying to figure out what is it in this sense right here that made it sinful specifically for David to do a census and what he was trying to do. Because when you read the words of what David said, he says, I want you to do this census and bring a report to me that I may know. I want to know their number. I need to know it. So I've got this video that might give us a clue, might push us into starting to understand why there was a problem with the census. Please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. <laughs> you know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning <laughs> actor Jim Carrey. Denzel. Because then I would be enough. it would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. <laughs> oh man, I love that. And, and what's interesting, you know, I was talking to Beth this morning about just about that video, and there's almost a, a little bit of an awkward laugh that's going on in the room as well, because people are like, this is so funny, but it's kind of true, and my life is sad. 
I mean, there is kind of that, that, that laughter. And as, as we look at the census and we think about the life of David, and as you read the commentary surrounding the census, because I really was wondering, you know, what is, what is going on with David at this point? And you're starting to feel it probably in the room now. I mean, D- David was beginning to believe his own press. There was a transition that took place in the heart of David. As amazing as David is, the, the person that has written half the Psalms, something had happened to David. It's the same thing that happened to the Israelites that I talked about last week when, when they came to Samuel and said, we want a king. And he said, you have a king. You have the king of kings. And they said, no, we want a king like everybody else has got a king. And it's called comparison. It's all, it's all of a sudden this, this, this thing that we do as human beings, and not just one of us does this, not just a few of us. It wasn't just David. It's not just characters in the Bible. It's not just me. It's something that is built and wired into all of us. I read an article in Psychology Today specifically about something called social comparison theory. And here's the, the simplest kind of paragraph. There's obviously uh, been lots of educational journals written about it, but people, imagine this, they constantly evaluate themselves and others in domains like attractiveness, wealth, intelligence, and success. According to some studies, as much as 10% of our thoughts involve comparisons of some kind. I mean, I thought about that. We are constantly, whether, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, we are evaluating ourselves and we're evaluating and looking around and assessing what other people are doing. Social comparison theory is the idea that individuals determine their social and personal worth based on how they stack up against others. Let me say that again because I really want us to get that because this is where, where I think we begin to unpack what this census speaks into our own hearts and our own minds. Social comparison theory is the idea that individuals determine their own We're determining our own social and personal value, worth, based on how they stack up against others. This is what we do as as human beings. As we look at this passage with with David, it seems like a silly thing, but what what David is doing in the census, as you read the preceding passages leading up to 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and the ones that come after, is David is measuring. David is counting. He's trying to see where he stacks up and he just he knows he stacks up pretty much better than everybody else. And it's just nice to hear it. I mean, he even says the words, I want you to count them and I want to know exactly what those numbers are. One point one million Israelites, 450,000 from the tribe of Judah. I and mean, he wanted to know the numbers. He wanted to hear where he stacks up. He wanted to measure that. And obviously he knows what what a typical army looks like in the kingdoms around him, and he is measuring. But it's one of the things that we do as human beings, don't we? I mean, we start out as little kids. I remember as a, as a kid, it starts with, with toys when you're young. Like, I grew up in, in my family. My dad worked at Sears, so, which is great. I mean, I know tough skin jeans, I mean, they're fantastic. But, you know, you get into middle school, you want to be able to move. I mean, you remember <laughs> walking around. But... My, my, all my friends, like bikes are a big deal when you're, when you're a kid, in your elementary, like I mean, jumping sweet ramps. I mean, you got to have a sweet bike, right? 
And all my friends, they, they would be, in, and there's those seasons in life, like, you, like Christmas time, you got your first bike, and then that one tore up, and then your parents are like, ooh, present, we got the bikes all torn up, we can get a bike again. You kind of knew when bike year was coming. And I was always nervous, and I was always hoping that my mom would tell my dad, but she probably felt bad to tell him, hey, he don't want a Sears bike. Because the Sears bike was called, like, you got all these cool names of, like, the bikes you buy at, you know, the cycle shop down the street, like, you got the horrors, you got the red lines, we got mongoose, you know, I mean, you, if you had a mongoose, you were, you were the dude. Sears had the free spirit. <laughs> and that, that was what I was just terrified that I was going to get. I remember Christmas, I was waiting for maybe possibly the mongoose, the red line or the whatever. And sure enough, I had like a, with yellow mag wheels and the blue tires, free spirit. And I was like, that's awesome. It's sweet. And I didn't even want to take it off. I wanted to wreck it on the first sweet jump I took it off of. Um, but we compare ourselves to one another. We, we continually do it. We do it, I mean, obviously with teenagers and, and beyond, you do it in the social groups. It's, it's popularity. Who's, who's popular? You get your points. You get your, your numbers. You know, David was getting his 1.1 million of his, you know, I've got this many swordsmen. I mean, we do it in, in who are my friends? Who are my people? Am I alone or do I have a crew? Am I popular? Do people like me? I mean, that is something that you guys deal with in a way that goes beyond probably what I dealt with when I was growing up and most of you have dealt with when you grew up. It's just a different social scene. And you have all these things that add to two particular areas that you're, you're built and wired with. These aren't sinful things that, that are a part of you. They're just a part of the way that God has made you. It's the way that we deal with these insufficiencies that God purposely gave you that drive you either towards sin or towards God. And they're, I mean, I could break them down into two simple areas in social comparison theory. Is One is love. We want to be loved by people. And that is not a bad thing. We, or we want to be loved. We want to, we want to sense, we want to know that we're loved, that we're wanted, that we're cared for. And the other one is importance. Importance kind of sounds like a, a more negative sense, but value or worthiness. We were built to have intrinsic value and have a sense of that intrinsic value. And we operate on planet Earth as human beings trying to find love and trying to find value. I mean, what do we spend most of our time doing in life? I mean, you see the trajectory of growing up. You're trying to find love and value. I mean, some of the people that are younger than, you know, 14, 13 years old are like, I'm not looking for love right now. Worthiness, you are. And then there's the older ones, which I can see. You. I see my son back there with his girlfriend. Um, you're looking for love, right? I mean, he's going to kill me for that one. This is going to be death later. But you're trying to, that's what we're looking for in life. That is what we're trying to attain. But the problem is, what is it that we're doing to attain those things? How are we trying to move in that direction? As adults, we do it. It's a little more covert as adults. I mean, we, it's just success. And there's nothing wrong with being successful. But what we're trying to do as, as successful people is we're trying to add to our what? Our value. Where do we stack up with other people? Maybe it's like the, the Psychology Today article said. You know, it, it's attractiveness. It's who I hang out with. It's my social circle. But it's success in some sense. It could be financial success, what type of house you have, what type of stuff that you have. And there's nothing wrong with having stuff. There's nothing, I've said this before, there's nothing wrong with having money. It's at what point and what place do we put that in the pecking order of what we rely on for our value, our importance, 
and our love? Where do we put that? You see, David, 1 Chronicles 21, what did he say? He said, then st- it says, then Satan stood against Israel. Satan's trying to do something, and it's very, very covert because he is a liar. He's smart. He incited David. He knew that David had gone and transitioned in some way and where he was status-wise. And it wasn't sinful that he was king. God put him there. But he knew that this was going to be a place where he could tempt David. He incited David to number Israel, to measure to add, find a place to add worth. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan. And he says, bring me a report. I want a report. I like it in, in black and white that I may know their number. So what, what did David do? The answer to this question and what was, what was wrong with his, what was it? What was wrong with the census was pridefully David chose to ignore God's power and faithfulness and become self-sufficient. He wanted to become self-sufficient. It was the, it's the sin of the Garden of Eden, actually, is where David had found himself. Prior to this, David was found in, like, David was the one that depended fully on God. I mean, we, when we see David in, in his early years, it was him and God. And he was the one looking up at the stars saying, you made the sun, the moon, the stars, everything that you've set in place, everything that I see, yet I am here and you know who I am. Who is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you know him. You, you know the hairs on my head. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I mean, we've read the Psalms, but that was him. That was David on his own. He wasn't a king. He was a shepherd. He was in the lowliest job you could possibly have. And yet all of his dependence was on God. All of his awe and wonder and worship was on God. And then with Goliath, it was the same thing. It was, there was, he had no army. In fact, the army wasn't backing him at all. It was just him. But was it David and his prowess that he was depending on? No, David himself said, I'm not going to defeat you today on this field. It will be my God that defeats you. It will be his power, the same power that he gave me to defeat the lion and the bear. That's the power that will defeat you on this field today. His dependence was completely on God. And then we see the most powerful psalms that were ever written. The majority of the ones that David wrote, he wrote while he was in the pit, while he was in the cave, while he was on the run, while he was by himself. He had nothing. He was not king. He had been anointed king, but his kingdom had been stripped away from him and he wasn't anointed king at this point. Didn't even know if he was ever going to be. And he didn't care because all he wanted to do was survive. And those psalms were written with The tone of, God, you are all that I have. You are all that I rely on. I don't know where you are right now. I don't know why I'm in this pit. I don't know why this is happening to me. But at the end of the day, all my chips are with you because you are the only one that I can depend on right now. That's all he had. That's all he had. But but things had changed, hadn't they? All of a sudden, David has some stuff. All of a sudden, David is the guy. All of a sudden, he leads Saul's army. All of a sudden, he's the commander-in-chief. He is the king of Israel. All of a sudden, Israel becomes one of the most powerful nations in the world, and something happens. Henry Nouwen puts, a, uh, puts some words to what happened to David uh, together that I love. It's a long, it's a long quote, but, but stay with me and listen to this because it, 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 it stuck in my soul the way that he said it. He says, when we start being too impressed with the results of our work, we slowly come to the erroneous conviction that life is one large scoreboard where someone is listing the points to measure our worth. 
And before we are fully aware of it, we have sold our soul to the many grade givers. That means we are not only in the world, but also of the world. Then we become what the world makes us. We are intelligent because someone gives us a high grade. We are helpful because someone says thanks. We are likable because someone likes us. And we are important because someone considers us indispensable. In short, we are worthwhile because we have successes. And the more we allow our accomplishments, the results of our actions to become the criteria of our self-esteem, the the firm foundation that we stand on, the more we are going to walk with our mental, walk on our mental and spiritual toes. In other words, it's fragile to put our dependence on what people think about us and the grades that they give us in life to have our worthiness and the love that we so need. We're never sure if we will be able to live up to the expectations which we create by our last successes. So powerful. And it resonates with me. And it's one of those things that consciously and subconsciously, I think we do because we are wired again. We are wired to know that we're loved. We are wired to know that we have some intrinsic value. But where do we get those? What fills that in? Because it is something that spiritually and And emotionally, God created us to to have those taken care of, to have those dealt with. And the problem that David's experiencing is, I think, the problem that many of us have in the times where we have very little. And I remember just even physically having very little money and very little stuff. I realize you you stress less and you, you don't worry as much. But all of a sudden, you begin to have stuff. You begin to have successes. You begin to be successful. You begin to to have things that create security, either financial security, like feeling like safety or security in terms of my self-esteem. I'm, I'm in the right place with the rest of the world. Like in terms of everybody else, comparison-wise, I stack up all right. And we gain some things. We gain some successes. Our resume, our jobs, the world that we live in, our friends, the social groups that we hang out with, the athletics, the, the grades that we get, they're, in, they're on par with everybody else. And I feel, I feel like I can, I can breathe. When we get into that place, the trap that happens is when we, when we begin to have those things, we begin to what? We begin to depend on those things. And the more that we de- begin to depend on those things, the more we begin to fear losing those things. And the more we begin to fear losing those things, the more we will compromise to keep those things. I mean, take, for instance, a relationship. Once you finally are in a relationship, you were dating, you were wanting to date, you were looking for a boyfriend, looking for a girlfriend, it was taking you forever. And finally, it happens. It's the one thing you want that will make you feel loved and will make you feel worth. And here comes Mr. Wright. He comes rolling along. He's cute. I don't know why I'm looking at them, because they, they, they think about dating. <laughs> Mr. Right comes along, but he's not. He's Mr. Wrong. But because he's going to, he's going to fill that gap and make me feel loved, and he's going to, in some way, make me feel value, I'll feel like I'm on par with all my other girlfriends that, that have a, a cool boyfriend that, that plays sports and does. But, but what am I willing? And, and then you have him. And then all of a sudden you realize he's not all he's cracked up to be. He doesn't love Jesus, one. He's, he's you know, he, he wants to push me morally in a direction I don't want to go. 
He, he, this is kind of what he, if you love me, you will do these things. If you love me, this is kind of the things that will, will happen. And I'm uncomfortable with those things. But what if I lose the love? What if I lose the worthiness? So I'm willing to compromise maybe sexually. I'm, I'm willing to compromise my morals. I'm willing to compromise who I date. I'm willing to compromise the friends that I have just because I feel popular. I feel worthwhile. I feel value. You see, when we start to attain things, our dependence... Like for David, his dependence went from completely and totally and utterly on God because he had nothing and no one. And then all of a sudden he, he had something. And the enemy says, okay, it's, there's, there's nothing wrong with having stuff. It's, do I have a firm grip on those things? Am I holding it loosely and laying it at God's feet? Or am I holding on to it and putting it under my feet as my firm foundation? Does that make sense? It's like we can have stuff. But are we, are we making it the foundation of our life to give us the love and the intrinsic value that our soul so desperately longs for? David, it's so amazing that his highest dependence was when he had nothing. His most beautiful psalms that he ever wrote were when he was in the cave. You know, there's a there's a book that I read a while back, and I've mentioned this in, in here before. It's called Red Like Blood. It's a gut wrencher, and it's, on our, it's a resource on our website. And I, it is definitely a recommended read. Um, but the, the story is amazing. When you want to see a, a display of how powerful God is and what, how God extends grace to human beings, that book will tell you. But the, the author, he's a pastor. His name is John Coffey. He tells a story about and kind of gives an illustration in the story to, to help grab hold of this idea of scorekeeping and how we measure our worth, our value, and the love that we have. And he, it's called the red and green M&M story. And he says, you know, in life, we need food physically to survive. All day long, we got three meals a day. You wake up in the morning, you get food. You, lunchtime, you get a little bit of hunger. You're going you're gonna to have to eat all day long. Emotionally and spiritually, we also need food. But we really, we work on a subconscious level in how we retrieve that food from other people and the, the accomplishments that we have in our bucket. So he says, what if it was all physical also? What if it was just red and green M&Ms? Green is my importance and my value and red is my love. And we've got jars at home. We've earned them. We've got big jars of red and green M&Ms and we get our meal going in the morning and then we leave to, to dart out for work and we, you know, I, got, I need a pocket full of greens. I'm gonna take some reds just in case something negative happens. And then you, you know, throughout the day, you have a bad conversation with somebody or somebody makes you feel less than or you're in a group of people where you're the one driving the beater car and everybody else has got the sweet ride. You know, they're all driving Audi A5s and I'm driving dirt bag car. And so then you're having to pop your green M&Ms because I need some importance here. I got to figure out where to get it because I definitely didn't get it from them. And you've got this sustenance all day long. I mean, there would be wars fought over the green and red M&Ms, right? I mean, this would be the thing. This would be the most valuable commodity on planet Earth. And we would walk into rooms and it would be an exchange that would happen with other human beings. And depending on where you were on the value and importance scale, you'd have to give up some of your green M&Ms. You know, he, he, he talks about pastors. He says pastors kind of get excluded from that because you walk into most environments and everybody else kind of has a different jobs. I mean, you're the, you know, he says you kind of get pushed out of the feeling good about yourself. And you men just kind of do it. It's like the question you ask when you go into a social situation. It's like, guys don't have much, as much depth, so it's, what's your name, man? And then what's the next question? Anybody? What do you do? Okay, y'all knew it right away. You know how shallow we are. What do you do, right? 
And so you go in and for a pastor, it's like, you know, what do you do? And their pastor is like, oh, that's awesome. It's, it's very cute. I love it. And they give you a noogie and it's great. <laughs> but you go to like a pastor's conference, and then you're with everybody else that's other pastors. And then you've got something to measure, right? What do you got? You got people. It's like, how many services you got? You know, how many people you got? You know, what, what's going on? And I, you know, he, and he talks about the transition of going from, you know, I'm going to have to give up all my green M&Ms because I got like three people that go to my church and there's people here with 15,000 people in their church, empty pockets. And I've got to give them all up to this guy. And he just uses it as this tangible way to look at how we get love, red M&Ms, and how we get importance and value and worthiness in the green M&Ms. And I see that in life. I mean, do you see that, that we do that all day long? We wake up in the morning, we walk throughout our day, and we are collecting the red and green M&Ms over and over and over again. And the reason we're doing it is because God has created us this way. But the problem is, is the enemy is trying to lie to you. He's trying to tell you where the, the endless supply of green and red M&Ms actually are found. Oh, they're going to be found in a perfect spouse, because that can be found right? Unicorn, if you find one, please capture it and let us know. Um, they, they, they don't exist, right? You're not going to find it. But the enemy will continually lie to you and tell you that there's going to be something along the way that will eternally fill that value meter, make you feel good enough, make you feel like you don't have to be shy or worry about life anymore or worry about how many friends you have or worry about what it looks like to, to have a relationship or be in a relationship, what it looks like to get enough grades and be successful enough to have the job, to have all the stuff so that I'm at least just medium in society and I have a pocket full of greens and a pocket full of reds. I mean, the enemy wants to continually speak those things over us and tell us what it looks like to live life. So how do we fight our tendencies towards self-sufficiency? How do we fight the same tendency that David had to collect his red and green M&Ms by looking at his life, by looking at his wife. See, if you go back and you read this passage, it wasn't just about David and his armies. It was about David starting to amass wives as well. So you've got his reds and his greens all on display in these passages in 1 Chronicles. They seem to be obscure, but if you begin to dig into them and you begin to read, you see what's happening in the life of David. See, I, I can be like David. So how do we fight our tendency towards self-sufficiency? How do we hold it loosely? And I love Ephesians chapter one, it says, for he chose us, it's right here in scripture. We hold on to these things. One is we remember our identity. Remember your new identity. It's changed. It's changed from anything that you had before you had no shot to be in a relationship with God. But this is how God fills in the gaps of our love, and worthiness. It says, for he chose us in him. So we weren't chosen by, you know, some ding dong in your high school that thinks you're cool. You were chosen by the king of the universe, Jesus himself, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love, read M&Ms, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He didn't just do it begrudgingly. He did it because he loved you and he wanted to do it to the praise of his glorious grace. And it gave him glory. He was proud, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. You belong, you're chosen, not on your merit, not on your score, simply because you're his son, simply because you're his daughter, 
Not because of anything you've done, because of everything he's done, because of everything he's earned, because the scorecard of the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection, the empty tomb, and the victory that we get to own with him. It's like being a fan. You know, as fans, we act like we won football games. Like, I am a Florida State Seminole, and I am glad we beat the U. I mean, we, I am just happy. I don't know if anybody's a Miami fan. I'm very sorry, but I'm going to talk about that, that win for a minute. I felt like I won. I was doing my happy dance. My kids were very embarrassed of me because I have a stereo system that bleeds to the outside with speakers out there. And I had the freaking tomahawk chop just as loud as it could go through my neighborhood down 7th Avenue. And I'm outside. Just, ah, I was chopping my leg, too. I was doing it all. I didn't win the game. But I get, to, I get to take part. I get to hold on to. I get to own the victory with the rest of my family, with the rest of my team, because I bleed garnet and gold. You get to own that victory with your heavenly father and your better elder brother, Jesus, who died on the cross for your sins and won the victory for you. We are winners, not because we earned it, not because we, we did something to gain it, but because he gained it for us and he loves us. Just like I love my kids. It doesn't matter. They, they could accomplish or not accomplish. It will never change the status of my love for them, ever. It will never change their worth to me, whether they, they just set the world on fire in success here on planet earth, or they, they are unknown and, and end up a janitor, but don't, but you know. <laughs> I will love them. It will never change. It will never change because of sonship, because of daughtership. Also, remember, you got to remember how good God is when you have everything and when you have nothing. And it's great to, to reminisce. David needs to reminisce of what it was like to be in the cave because in the cave, that's where he became a worshiper. That's where he became a worship leader. That's where the heart of the worshiper is born, is in the cave, in, in, in the difficult places, in the valley like we sang about today. That's where it springs forth. That's where we fall in love and we realize when everything else, everybody else lets us down, when the world comes shaking down, when our successes and the people around us can't give us the approval, the love and the worthiness that we want, that there's a heavenly father that has an endless, endless supply that even when I'm in the cave, even when I'm in the darkness, I am loved and nobody can outrun that. When I have Jesus, I have everything that I need. Jesus plus nothing equals everything for you and me. It's such a powerful thing that we would remember. We would remember. That's the story of my life. I became a true worshiper in the dark. I needed to be stripped of everything to realize that I had lost nothing. That I had lost nothing. And that, you know what that, that made me want to do? I want to worship to bend my heart upwards towards Jesus and quit looking down here. Just like it says in Colossians, you've been raised with Christ and your eyes, your eyesight, because you've been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms, your eyesight's no longer down here looking to grab the love and the worthiness down here. I've got it all and it's right here and I'm seated at the right hand of God along with my elder brother, Jesus. He's with me in it. So powerful to remember that, to be a worshiper, in the dark, and when things are good. I said this in the first service. When I was at, at River City Church, a couple of friends of mine, Ed Nixon and Paul Buckley, um, Ed was, was kind of with me in it, kind of 
trying to figure out what Paul wanted us to do, but he, he was the main worship leader at the, at the church. We were both on the worship team. And he said, he said, man, I used to do this thing. He says, we, we, our church needs to, we need to be able to lead them in worship, but authentically, like, like not be the people that are like asking them to raise their hands or dance or do stuff. We just like, we have to be those people and not worry about what they're doing. If we don't, if that's not our heart, then how can we lead the people? And I mean, he was just a general of a worship leader. Like he was amazing. And he just said, a friend of mine when I was in, in Memphis, you know, said, we need this. He says, but we're too, you know, we're, we're not like David. We're not going to dance undignified before the Lord. We're not going to, we're not going to, that's just not who we're going to be. So let's turn off all the lights in the auditorium when nobody's there during the week. And we'll just crank up the sound system and we'll put on like worship dance music, like crazy. I mean, this sounds, I know y'all think I'm crazy. This, but he said, let's, let's do this. And then we're going to go in there and we're going to, if, if, if God is worth it, we're going to dance before the Lord. And we're going to turn the, turn the lights and get dark. And so you have to worry about it. And he said, we would go in there. And he says, it would take a second. But all of a sudden, we were dancing before the Lord, just like we read in the scriptures. Like dancing like David did in the temple when the Ark of the Covenant came back and the presence of God was back. They were going crazy. And so we all did, me, Ed, and, and Paul did that. We said, well, let's do it. After lunch, we're going to go up to the, to the auditorium. The office was in a different location, so nobody would be up there. And we'll just do it. And we did it. And it was weird. I'll just be honest. Do you know what happens, you know, when you turn off the lights? It's like it's dark at first, so you're like doing your thing, and all of a sudden your eyes start to adjust, and you're like, I can see people in here. And you see little figures bounce by. You're like, I think that was Ed. He's just going by. He dances weird. And I mean, you just, but something beautiful happened along the way. It, bent, it, it, it all of a sudden, the value meter for the sufficiency of God and the insufficiency of me started to change. And in the middle of that, it's like we, would, we were dancing and then the, the centerpiece of the songs were leading us to the cross and to the places of lament and to the places of... And all of a sudden, without even being prompted, without even the music heading in that direction, I just started confessing sin. I just started tearing up. Like I, was, I didn't even know what, why this was happening. But, but intentional movements towards God in worship, all of a sudden, it changed the heart to the point where I hadn't seen my sin and all of a sudden I realized I had forsaken I'd done what Romans 1 says. I, I, I had made the created things the foundation under my feet. The successes in life the foundation under my feet. The things that people say about me the foundation under my feet. And I have forgot about the actual creator of the wonderful things that God's given us here on planet earth and not given him glory, not made him the foundation under my feet. Forgotten that he's actually the one that wins the battle because the battle belongs to the Lord, not me. He owns it. That's him, and we forget, and worship leads us to that place. We have to remember how good God is, not just when we have nothing, but when we have everything, it's very dangerous because we can clench our fists on it rather than loosen our hands and lay it before who God is. It's the thing that I want most for my kids to see. I, you know, as a parent, you wonder, what, what do you want to pass on to your kids? Like Bible knowledge, you know, you're a pastor, you want your, your kids to to know, you know, how to you know, know the 66 books of the Bible. You know, what are the ones of the Old Testament? Go now. You know, how do you do it? You know, to, to have all of these things worked out in their, in their life. But the most, benefit, the, the most beneficial thing, I think, for them to see, for them to absorb, for me to lead them into is that I'm imperfect, that I apologize a lot and repent a lot, and that I worship that I worship Jesus, that I might make a lot of mistakes, 
that I am not the one worthy of worship, but I do lift my hands to the one who is. I, am, I can undignify myself before the God that I love. I might make a lot of mistakes. I'm gonna have to, and I have apologized a lot to my kids for some of the stupid things I've said, some of the stupid things I've done in front of them. But I want to, at the end of the day, for them to say, my dad did a lot wrong, but man, he loved Jesus. And he was a worshiper. And his, his dependence wasn't on his money. His dependence wasn't on a house. He, he didn't even depend on us for all of his love and security because that weight would have crushed us. He depended on God. And I, I don't, I'm not saying I'm there, but this is where I wanna, I wanna make the transition that David needed to make here to hand over his armies, to hand over his life and get back to that place of what it was like to have this beautiful, intimate relationship in a cave when he had no one, but he had everything. I want to be in that place and I want my kids to see that. Last thing, how do we fight tendencies towards self-sufficiency? We don't just want to know that we have a new identity. We want to remember that we're loved. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called what? He says at exclamation point, children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know is that it did not know him. The world doesn't get it. They don't understand why we don't cling to these things. Jim Carrey, he's figuring it out, right? Like one award, two award, three award. It's not, it's not going to fix it. It's not going to make it better. The value and the worthiness meter. The, the enemies told you that this is where all the red and green M&Ms are. But they're not. God has them all, but he's so gracious and he wants to give them all away. And he has with his blood on the cross. You know, years ago in 2000, I think it was 2008 or 2009, uh, the Georgia Bulldogs were playing, um, cannot remember, I couldn't remember in the first service either what, what game it was, but it was a critical game. And they were down by a field goal. It was the end of the game, last few seconds of the game. And there's this scene that all the press, they took this picture of Mark Richt, who was the coach at the time. He's got the kicker's face mask like this. He's looking at him, and he's talking to him all serious, just doing all this. And then he kind of shoves him and gives him a pat on the butt and sends him out there. And the guy, ping, kicks the field goal, and they win the game. Um, and everybody asks him, you know, what, were you, what, were you, what was this conversation that you were having? And to everybody's surprise, this is, this is what he was saying. He said, I told him that I love him no matter what happens, and that I was serious. He goes on to tell the press, he said, it's a lot of pressure for a young man. Sometimes guys think that their worth is whether they perform well or not, but that's not really the fact of the matter. And he goes on, actually, and they cut off this piece of the interview, but I watched uh, him talk about it. He goes on to talk about not being defined by the scoreboard um, in the and the pressure that athletes are under and his job as a coach was not to lead them to any, I mean, his ultimate job, obviously he wanted to win national championships, but was to lead men to something greater, something bigger, something better to football. And that was Jesus um, and how much Jesus loved him. And it just made me think of Romans chapter eight. What a beautiful treatise of God's love. So I want to stand as we read this out of God's word and I want to read this over you because I think somebody wants to hear this and needs to hear this today because I think all of us tend to scramble 
get enough M&Ms in our pocket to make it through the day. But I think Jesus wants us to be free and know that he's given everything so that we could have everything we need. Verse 31 says, what then shall we say in response to these things? And the Apostle Paul is just setting this up. He's just said, hey, you're going to suffer. You're going to go through it. You're going to be in the pit. Things are going to get given to you. Things are going to get taken away from you. This is going to be a difficult season. But what do we do? How do we respond? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all the M&Ms? doesn't say that, but I wanted to. All things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns you? Who's your measuring stick? Who's the one that's going to tell you if you're good enough, if you're smart enough, if you're pretty enough, if you're loved enough, if you've done enough? Who's going to be the one that tells you that? Who's going to be the one to fill you up? No one, he says. No one can condemn you. No one can measure you. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He is the one and only judge. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It's a hard life. If you live long enough, you will bleed. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not because we're awesome. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God, we want to remember where our help comes from. God, the, the foundation of our life with you is not one of do more, do more, do more so that you can earn more. Be the best person. Clean yourself up so that you can be a good church person. Clean yourself up so you can be lovable again. But in our current state, no matter what we've done that's good, no matter where we've gone, You've paid the price that we can be loved. And you have given us intrinsic value as image bearers of you as king. Just come, Holy Spirit, and burn that into our heart, into our soul. Allow us to soak into your word that we would never forget it. Allow us to sing your songs that it would drive it into our heart and our souls emotionally, spiritually, and physically. In Jesus' name.